0: Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study this brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week 29, Second Kings chapter 19. We closed out our last lesson in Second Kings by reading Ezekiel 38 because it is closely connected, was 2 Kings 18 and 19. Now, if you missed that lesson, I suggest you obtain it as we're not going to be reviewing its importance today. And as we move forward with chapter 19, let's continue discussing King Hezekiah of Judah and his reaction to the second message that King Sennacherib of Assyria sent to him demanding that Judah submit to Assyria or be destroyed. Now the first message was delivered orally by the viceroy of Assyria, an unnamed man with the title of Rav Shekeh. The second message was delivered in written form. Thus we see that even though Rav Shekeh had ample opportunity the first time to embellish and add his own personality to the message that the king of Assyria wanted communicated to his chaos. The written document that was the second message demonstrates that the first and second messages were basically identical and thus precisely representative of Sennacherib's demands upon Judah. Rav Shakai had been faithful in his duty not to add to or subtract from Sennacherib's intent. Well, with the, While the context and the content of Sennacherib's messages were on the surface all about persuading Melech Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, that he didn't stand a chance against their superior armed forces of Assyria and that resistance would be foolhardy, it would be counterproductive, there was also a spiritual aspect to it that proved to be Sennacherib's undoing. He directly challenged the power and the authority of the God of Israel. He even blatantly blasphemed him by assigning him the office of God's agent to destroy what remained of God's kingdom. It was this display of blasphemy that caused King Hezekiah to tear his clothing to don sackcloth as a sign of mourning. And because Sennacherib's message was mostly one of challenge and of profaning the God of Israel, Hezekiah did the right thing by bringing that letter to the temple and then placing it before the Lord for the Lord to deal with it. Thus, In our last lesson, I told you that two important pieces of information were revealed to us in 2 Kings 19.14. The first was that by sending the message in writing, Sennacherib laid claim to all blame for his blasphemy. He could not say that the messenger altered the message in some unintended way. Thus, the Lord would deal with him directly. But the second principle is that when someone blasphemes God in your presence, it's best to take the matter to God. Believers have a tendency to think that part of our job description is to defend the Lord. And while we should not turn tail and run when our Lord is insulted or His word is misrepresented, at the same time we should not think that somehow we have to be the avengers of God's blasphemers. God does not assign believers the duty of avenging Him. Rather, the day will come when the blasphemers who are alive at the second coming will be cut down by Christ. And those who died in earlier days in their blasphemy will personally face that great judge and they'll have their just reward meted out to them at that time. To see what happens when a worshiper decides that he or she is to be God's avenger look no farther than Islam it is a basic tenet of Islam that adherents are indeed charged with being the avengers of Allah. And therefore, every perceived insult to the Muslim God or to his prophet, Muhammad, is met with mayhem and violence and at times murder. It is better for a true worshiper of Jehovah and follower of Yeshua to be well equipped. With God's Word and indwelt by His Holy Spirit to respond sensibly without rashness to those who pervert and misuse God's Scripture or, or who dispute His nature or even His existence. But if one has little or no actual knowledge of the Bible, no real relationship with God, then all one has to respond with is emotion and often unsubstantiated, although passionate, Christian cliches and man-made doctrines. Let us vow to be wise in such matters, because it's self-evident that the world is rapidly abandoning any notion of an all-powerful living and active creator God in favor of an all-powerful human intellect. And that in our time, even the body of believers has become infected with much apostasy. And that was predicted by Messiah himself in Revelation chapters 1 through 4. Such that something as basic as knowing who God is, what his commandments to us are, what our obligations to him amount to, well, this has been greatly compromised and replaced with various denominational creeds and loyalties. It speaks well for King Hezekiah that he did not respond to Sennacherib. And he ordered that neither his royal administration nor even the common citizens of Judah should say a word to Sennacherib's three representatives. This was a matter for Jehovah to deal with because he was the aggrieved party. And any action that humans might take on his behalf would amount not to pious involvement, but rather to unwarranted interference on God's turf. Let's begin by rereading part of chapter 19. 2 Kings chapter 19, we're going to start at verse 14 which is on page 425 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Hiskiau took the letter from the messenger's hands and he read it. Then Hezekiah went up to the house of Adonai and he spread it out before Adonai. Hezekiah prayed as follows in the presence of Adonai. Adonai, God of Israel who dwells above the cherubim, you alone are God of all the kingdoms of, on earth. You made heaven and earth. Turn your ear, Adonai, and hear. Open your eyes, Adonai, and see. Hear the words that Sennacherib sent to taunt the living God. It is true, Adonai, that the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire, for these were non-gods, merely the product of people's hands, wood and stone. This is why he could destroy them. Now therefore, Adonai, our God, please save us from his power so that all the kingdoms on earth will know that you are Adonai God, you only. Then Yeshua, Isaiah, the son of Amot sent this message to Hezekiah. Adonai, the God of Israel, says, You prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Asher, and I've heard you. Here is Adonai's answer concerning him. The virgin daughter of Zion despises you. She laughs you to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem shakes her head at you. Whom have you taunted and insulted? Against whom have you raised your voice and haughtily lifted your eyes? The Holy One of Israel. Through your messengers you taunted Adonai. You said, With my many chariots I have ascended the mountain heights, even in the far reaches of the Lebanon." I cut down its tall cedars and its best cypresses. I reached its remotest corners and its best forests. I dug wells in foreign lands. I drank the water. The soles of my soldiers' feet dried up all the rivers of Egypt. Haven't you heard? Long ago, I made it. In antiquity, I produced it. Now, I'm making it happen. You are turning fortified cities into heaps of ruins. While their inhabitants, shorn of power, are disheartened and ashamed, weak as grass, frail as plants, like grass on their rooftops or grain scorched by the east wind. But I know when you sit, when you leave, when you enter, and when you rage against me. And because of your rage against me, because of your pride that has reached my ears, I am putting my hook in your nose and my bridle on your lips and I'll make you return by the way on which you came. Now this will be the sign for you. This year you will eat the grain that grows of itself. The second year you will eat what grows from that. But in the third year you'll sow, reap, plant vineyards and eat their fruit. Meanwhile... The remnant of the house of Judah that has escaped will again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For a remnant will go out from Yerushalayim. Those escaping will go out from Mount Zion. The zeal of Adonai Zevaot will accomplish this. Therefore this is what Adonai says concerning the king of Asher. He will not come to this city or even shoot an arrow there. He will not confront it with a shield or erect earthworks against it. By the way he came, he'll return. He'll not come to this city, says Adonai, for I will defend this city and save it for both my own sake and for my servant David's sake. That night, the angel of Adonai went out and struck down 185,000 men of the camp of Assyria. Early the next morning, there they were, all of them, corpses, dead. So Sennacherib, king of Asher, left, he went, he returned to live in Nineveh. And one day as he was worshipping in the temple of Nisroch, his god, his sons, Adrammelech and Shartzer struck him with the sword and escaped into the land of Ararat. So his son Esarhaddon took his place as king. What comes now is called the prayer of Hezekiah. And while to a modern Christian or messianic or religious Jew there is nothing startling or provocative about this prayer, one must understand that here is the strongest statement in the Bible to this point in Israel's history that not only is God one, ehad, in the sense of his nature being a complete unity, but that he is also one in the sense of being the only God in existence. In other words, this, what we just read, is the most precise statement of monotheism we have thus far encountered in the Old Testament. In fact, it would be fair and accurate to say that Hezekiah's prayer redefines Israel's understanding of monotheism. All throughout our studies since Genesis I've explained that the Hebrews along with the rest of the world fully accepted the notion that there were many gods and that these gods were territorial. Each nation had its own set of gods. It's only that Israel was considered to be god-poor in that for some inexplicable reason everybody else was afforded several gods. But poor Israel had just one single very jealous God that allowed no rivals, none, to rule along with him in his territory. Thus for Israel up to King Hezekiah monotheism meant one God for the nation of Israel. That's all that was permitted. So here we see progressive revelation in action. Suddenly, Judah has a king that apprehends an aspect of God's nature and of the spirit world that up to this point has not been understood. Such a revelation could only come from the Lord. And that revelation is that it is not that Israel is to accept no other deity than Yehoveh. It is that there exists no other deity whatsoever than Jehovah Thus, to worship other gods is to worship a bunch of nothings. No doubt this notion was suspected centuries earlier by God's prophets and perhaps some of God's judges, maybe even King David. But this radical concept of absolute monotheism was for the Hebrews, so far as scripture tells us, not fully formed and it was quite fuzzy until this moment that's recorded for us in 2 Kings 19. And from here forward now in the Tanakh, the Old Testament, we will certainly see that many of god's prophets and his servants of all kinds began to consciously comprehend that jehovah was god of everyone and everything hebrew and gentile of the spiritual and the physical uh, and the physical spheres in heaven and on earth so this had the effect of transforming the concept of idolatry from the fear that other gods could hurt you if you didn't honor them, to fearing that by rebelliously placing loyalty in these false gods, these non gods, these nothings, the Jehovah would see your actions as abandoning him. And thus, he might do likewise. Now, you would have no God to rely on, whatsoever, as there was no other god to turn to under any circumstances. Verse 16 confirms that while Hiskial is of course concerned over the survival of his kingdom, his real grief and concern is over the, the, the desecration of God's holiness that's contained in Sennacherib's threatening letter. So we hear Hezekiah pray in verse 16, Turn your ear, Adonai, and hear. Open your eyes, Adonai, and see. Hear the, hear the words that Sennacherib sent to taunt the living God. One thing that becomes crystal clear about King Hezekiah is that his righteousness allows him to view the world as it is. He doesn't seek to candy coat matters or deny the truth so that he can avoid facing it. In verse 17, Hezekiah openly admits that the part of Sennacherib's letter about Assyria dominating any kingdom they set their sights upon, destroying any king or nation that resists them too hard, It's true. In other words, by its own might, Judah has little to no chance of warding off Sennacherib. He absolutely can achieve what he threatens to do to Judah. This is another excellent example of how we ought to approach God. We come to Him honestly, humbly, our eyes wide open. Admit That by all human calculation, by all natural means, our situation seems impossible. How can we break our drug addiction when our best efforts to stay clean and even the expertise of the most advanced treatment centers has failed? How can we ever hope for a grown child of ours to come to Messiah when they are living their lives in a degrading, perverse way denying that God exists and that they seem to have fully embraced and enjoyed all that for the most part? How can we survive an illness that no human scientific means is normally able to conquer? And how if we are the nation of Israel? How can we as so small a nation in land mass and in population withstand the onslaught of scores of millions of sworn enemies that surround us who seek to usher us into extinction if it is not by the might of our advanced military weaponry. Hezekiah demonstrates that the first step is to bring such an impossible matter before the Lord. Acknowledge His sovereignty, admit our helplessness, and contritely declare He is our only avenue of deliverance on every level. In verse 18, Hezekiah makes the startling statement, startling in his depth of understanding for his day and age, that these idols that other nations worship are just inanimate pieces of wood and stone. They represent nothing real. They have no inherent power whatsoever. And the proof of that is that the Assyrians could burn up these many national god idols at will. After all, if these stone and wood idols really were gods, how could mere humans actually overpower and destroy them? Conclusion? They aren't real. And there are no other gods on earth or in the heavens than Jehovah. In other words, merely careful human observation of our environment proves That Jehovah, God of Israel, is not only real, but He's the only God. Here is how St. Paul phrased it. Some seven centuries later. We find this in Romans 1 18 through 25. I'll just read it to you. What is revealed is God's anger from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who, in their wickedness, keep suppressing the truth because what is known about God is plain to them, since God has made it plain to them. For ever since the creation of the universe, His invisible qualities, both His eternal power and His divine nature, have been clearly seen, because they can be understood from what He's made. Therefore, they have no excuse, because although they know who God is, they do not glorify Him as God or thank Him. On the contrary, they have become futile in their thinking and their undiscerning hearts have become darkened. Claiming to be wise, they become fools. In fact, they have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for mere images, like a mortal human being or like birds or animals or reptiles. This is why God has given them up to their vileness of their heart's lusts, to the shameful misuse of each other's bodies. They have exchanged the truth of God for falsehood by worshiping and serving created things rather than the Creator. Praised be He forever. Amen. So concludes His Hezkeiach, In verse 19, the only logical thing for him to do is to now throw himself upon God's mercy and ask for God to avenge himself and at the same time to deliver Judah from an otherwise inevitable takeover by the blasphemous Sennacherib and his admittedly unstoppable military power. Since God always provided a prophet to communicate his will to the line of kings that had governed Israel and Judah for the last 300 years, he sent the prophet Isaiah with a message to Hezekiah that his prayer was heard. And here is the Lord's answer. It's a powerful, it's a poetic response that can be broken down into three parts. First part verses 21 through 28. That addresses Sennacherib directly about his arrogant boastings. Part 2, verses 29 through 31 are addressed to Hezekiah directly in order to give him certain reassur- certain uh, reassurances. Part 3, verses 32 through 34 prophesies that God is going to deliver Judah and that he is going to judge Sennacherib for his blasphemy. Well, verse 21 begins by metaphorically referring to Jerusalem as the virgin daughter of Zion. The intended picture is of an unconquered young maiden, a virgin. And this metaphorical use of comparing a daughter of Zion to the holy city is rather common in Bible prophecy. The idea is that because a maiden, an unmarried girl, has never submitted herself to a husband and thus has never become physically or spiritually joined to him, so Jerusalem has never submitted herself to an unwelcome foreign king. And this virgin, Jerusalem, looks upon the unwelcome suitor, Assyria, with scorn, that only a female can display. And men, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> the shaking her head at you is a typical Middle Eastern sign of derision and disgust. But verse 22 quickly gets to the heart of the matter. King Sennacherib asks jehovah uh, rhetorically, Do you have no idea just whom it is that you've taunted and insulted? You think you can raise your voice and behave arrogantly towards my anointed king? That you can threaten my holy city and not understand that it's the God of the universe that you're challenging and blaspheming? Foolish king, do you actually think you're more powerful than the one who created you along with everything else? And then in verses 23 and 24, the Lord throws Sennacherib's boastful words right back at him and he reminds him that he said he has so many war chariots that no one and no God has ever been able to resist them. Meaning that neither those nations' militaries nor their national deities could derail the Assyrian army. Thus neither could Judah's puny army nor Judah's impotent God resist the great king of Assyria. He claims that his war machine has conquered the highest mountain, has captured the prized forests of Lebanon in order to extract its biggest trees and best timber for himself. His multitudes of soldiers have at will marched into foreign nations and dug wells to take their water. In many nations, water was their most precious resource. In fact, there are so many Assyrian soldiers that when they crossed the rivers and tributaries of Egypt, the sandals on the soldiers' feet absorbed so much water that it dried up the watercourses. But in verse 25, the Lord sets the matter straight. Sennacherib, in reality, you were no more than my puppet you were a useful tool in my hand. Long ago the Lord had planned to turn the wickedness of the Assyrian Empire loose upon nations and kingdoms that the Lord wanted judged. The fortified cities that Sennacherib conquered, the disheartened and devastated citizens of the conquered lands only happened because the Lord permitted it and essentially orchestrated it all. Your victims, Sennacherib, were defeated before you ever left your palace to lead your army. But instead of giving me my due glory and honor, you assume it's your cunning, it's your might, it's your intelligence that has made it all happen, so you take the credit. Moving on to verse 27, the Lord now begins to speak of his own omniscience. He knows everything. He sees everything. No plan has ever been devised by any man that he didn't know about beforehand. But the Lord also knows when a human being sets out to go against him, to rebel, to do what the Lord does not want done. This is speaking of what a human secretly thinks of the condition of one's heart that's invisible to all but God. And where does all this raging, all of this arrogance against God come from? Sennacherib's pride. And so now the Lord is going to use that pride that has come from Sennacherib's unprecedented successes to draw the king of Assyria into his own demise as we discussed in our last lesson especially regarding the war of Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 38 that war is going to come about because Gog, king of Magog and a now in like kind Sennacherib, king of Assyria are going to have irresistible thoughts supernaturally placed into their minds by the Lord These thoughts are going to connect very well with the prideful and rebellious natures of Gog and of Sennacherib so that these divinely implanted thoughts will be welcomed by them. They will easily embrace them and make them their own because it fits their pattern of thinking, it meets with their lust for power and wealth and control. The result for Sennacherib is that in the end it will cause him to return by the way which you came. In other words, some undefined situation is going to cause the king of Assyria to abandon his aspirations of conquering Judah and go back home to his capital city of Nineveh. Thoroughly defeated, unable to try again. Now let me pause for a moment and comment that the nature of prophecy is such that only occasionally after pronouncing what is going to happen do we ever learn from the Lord about how it's going to happen and what it's going to look like. And to a fault, it is virtually unpredictable and thus, difficult if not impossible for the human mind to accurately guess what the circumstances will be. That A. Causes a prophecy to be fulfilled and B. What the mechanism and process will be by which it occurs. Not the prophets, not even John the Baptist who was sent to announce the advent of the Messiah knew much more than that the time had arrived for it to happen. This is why I have serious reservations about the appropriateness or value of the endless speculations of authors and pastors about the end time scenarios. The same thing happened for scores, even hundreds of years leading up to the birth of Yeshua pronouncements that the Messiah had arrived, where he was going to be born, from which family he would come, the detailed circumstances surrounding his birth and life, all this only served to confuse and mislead the public. And then ultimately, because Yeshua's life and person looked nothing like the speculations of the haughty religious authorities the vast majority of the Jewish public just couldn't reconcile what they had been taught to expect with what they had witnessed in Christ's life and in His death on the cross. So He was rejected. And along with that, millions of Jews never accepted their salvation. I'm quite concerned that the many speculations of modern-day self-anointed prophets, novelists who write to make money, pastors seeking notoriety or are self-deluded into thinking that God has revealed in times details to them that He has not to anyone else are going to cause countless believers to stumble and lose faith large numbers of seekers to die unsaved when the Antichrist arises, when Yeshua returns, when the so-called period of tribulation begins, and when that sudden disappearance of believers that has been dubbed the rapture happens and it's all ignored or denied because it doesn't fit with the scenarios they've been taught as unassailable church doctrines in some cases, in fiction books and in Christian literature as near fact, or as a result of the errant predictions of a growing number of self-styled prophets. Like for the Bible teachers of old and the Bible characters, the hows and the whys about divine prophecy are often left out even though it's human nature for us to want to know. We really want to know. But there is never a shortage of folks who somehow feel led to try to fill in all the blanks that God has deemed He just doesn't want us to know yet. And that rarely turns out for the good. So be alert. Do not allow yourselves to fall victim to it. Or worse, become a participant in it. Learn the Bible so that you can discern what has clearly been written versus what somebody says is there. Prophecy is useful to tell us what lies ahead, and usually it's a warning to prepare. But we only discover the details and the process in retrospect. It's always been that way since time immemorial. It is a God pattern. It's not going to change because somebody's been given a TV show or a book contract. In verse 29, the prophetic oracle of Isaiah is directed to King Hiskiel and Yehovah begins by offering a sign of divine guarantee that what he promises will come about. And the sign concerns agriculture. The situation is that Sennacherib's assault on Judah has resulted in the fields going untended and unplanted as the Judeans fled the onslaught. However, the Lord says that even though nothing has been planted, the volunteer crops that grow up from the grain seeds that fell off the previous harvested stalks, and even the plants themselves, many of which remained rooted, though dormant, in the ground, would produce sufficient for the remnant of Judah. But the next year, something even more amazing is going to happen. A third growth is going to occur from what was planted two years ago. But in the third year, normal farming will begin again. Vineyards will be tended, orchards cared for, implying that the war is over. The Assyrians are gone and peace is broken out. The Hebrew survivors will flourish. This includes the Judeans, who Sennacherib attacked, and those few remnants that remain from the ten northern tribes. The imagery were given is of a fruit tree. And people who know anything about trees knows that the spread of the roots is proportional to the spread of the tree branches. Thus the further down the roots go, the further up the branches grow to provide even more fruit. And it's not going to be according to the merit or the effort of the citizens of Judah that all this is going to happen but rather by the zeal of God to protect His holy name. And now in verse 32 is the prophecy itself. Sennacherib will never come to Jerusalem despite his threats, his intentions and by human standards his certainty to do so. Not a single arrow is going to be fired towards Jerusalem by the enemy forces. None of the feared siege machines will try to scale or break down the defensive walls. And this is because God has determined it. It's just that simple. It can't happen unless he permits it. And he is fighting for Judah for his own sake and to defend the royal line of David. Because, as was promised and has happened, from David's line will come the promised Redeemer. Without fanfare and typical subdued biblical narrative, we find that the Lord brought a plague upon the Assyrian army, killing 185,000 troops. It says that it was the angel of Adonai, the angel of the Lord, or better yet, the Malach Yehovah, that carried out the slaughter. It is the same term used in Exodus for whom it was that killed all the Egyptian firstborn the night of Passover before the Hebrews left Egypt <clears throat> since whenever the Malach Yehovah, the angel of the Lord is quoted and even though that's not the case here in verse 35 it's always done in the first person I, me so unlike regular angel angels who say that the Lord sent them They're bringing his message. They're a servant doing the Lord's bidding. The angel of the Lord always speaks and acts in his own authority. This is why I suggest that despite the more rigid interpretation of the Trinity doctrine that says God can only manifest himself in three ways, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the angel of the Lord certainly seems to be a fourth divine manifestation as opposed to him being some alternative but undefined spirit being. Now the way that the verse is worded sounds as though the 185,000 deaths of the Assyrian soldiers took place in one night. However, many excellent Bible commentators say this can't be. That one night's just hyperbole. Perhaps It was added by some editor at a later date to raise the drama and the impact of it. I don't see any need to do such harm to the scriptures and adopt that viewpoint. In fact, what you'll find is that most of the commentators who do not accept the narrative as written come from what is called the critical school of Bible commentary. And a common thread that runs through the critical school is the philosophy that all profoundly catastrophic biblical happenings such as the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, the earth opening up under the rebellious Israelites out in the wilderness, the parting of the Red Sea, and much more, must be accounted for by natural means. The destruction of the Twin Cities, therefore, must have been a meteorite shower. Maybe it was the eruption of a volcano. The parting of the Red Sea was actually merely the minor drying up of a mud flat called the Reed Sea, which was just a few inches deep at most. They also view most prophecies as people writing about some event after the fact but creating a religious fairy tale that says that the happening was predicted beforehand. And in our case today, The claim is that the number 185,000 is either vastly inflated or there indeed was a plague, but thousands of soldiers would have died of illness over a period of days and weeks, not in a few hours. The critical school does not accept miracles. But if the Bible is left devoid of divine miracles, then we have a deeply diminished Bible and a far less able God. So I dismiss their viewpoint out of hand. Just like in Egypt on Passover night, thousands of Assyrian troops died in hours. The numbers were so staggering and the Assyrian army was so decimated that Assyrian records indicate they were never the same afterwards they were never able again to mount a serious offensive against what was by now a greatly diminished Jerusalem and Judah. Thus it would eventually fall to the Babylonians to take down Assyria and then to conquer Judah to bring down God's judgment upon his rebellious people. But not only was the prediction fulfilled that Sennacherib would go home, but also that he would die violently. And sure enough, the Bible record matches with the Assyrian record that his own sons assassinated him as he was worshipping his god Nisroch. Now let me comment on a couple of things and we'll end this lesson. First, there is no mention anywhere of an Assyrian god called Nisroch. So this is some type of a copyist error or early mistranslation. Second, it was not that uncommon in Assyria for a failed king to be assassinated by his own family. The Assyrian society was based on war and conquest and it did not easily tolerate failure. Killing was usual and normal. And when a general or even a king suffered a major defeat, blame was assigned. And he often didn't survive it when he returned home. The Sennacherib's son, Esarhaddon, became the new king of Assyria. Next time, we'll close out Hezekiah's reign, but in reality, 2 Kings chapter 20 takes a step back in time of several years from where our chapter 19 just ended.